Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. You know, so I think it's a good start to put more patients than doctors in the room if you want empowerment. But I think that for practitioners who are involved, I think you really have to realize that your expertise is not as valuable as your ability to help people help themselves. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hey friends, welcome back to The Better Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I had a very interesting conversation with James. We sat down and talked about the role of community in influencing health outcomes. So we talked about how the our North American society in particular, and this when I say North American, we can be calling this Uh, the Americas. Uh, We can also extend this into European culture as well, anywhere really in the Commonwealth uh, extension as well. And we talked about how we are now divorced from our communities and how this is driving up some of these common killers, these chronic disease states. So things like heart disease, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's, etc. And we talked about how it is really different than the way that we used to. And we got into a discussion around the blue zones. So these areas in the world where we see the communities are producing centenarians. So these are people that are living to 100 and older. They do not have the rates of chronic diseases that we see in North America. And we talked about how this is driven through culture. And these communities don't necessarily have access to sophisticated health care systems the way that you know someone living in the States or Canada might. But we see that these people are living longer without chronic disease. So we got into this and we got into his book, The Community Cure, which I am scheduling this to be released January 13th, and this is when his book is being released. So all this week, I believe the specific dates are January 14th through 18th, the book is free. So you can go to amazon.com.ca.co.uk, wherever you are listening from, and you can download the book for free. And it is basically a roadmap for you to start creating more meaningful connections in your community. So this is was written for healthcare providers, so medical doctors, chiropractors, naturopathic doctors, etc. But this can also be useful for somebody, you don't necessarily have to have this in a medical setting. And James talked about this and reinforced this throughout the conversation that this theory or this template that he's providing really can be used inside and outside of the medical system. So we talked about the seven steps that he outlined in terms of how to create community. And the first 
step was through groups. So either classifying people through what, whether it's language, uh, it could be age, it could be interest, it could be, you know, in the, if it's in a medical setting, maybe through disease uh, classification and how to facilitate groups where we are feeling open and honest and we have the ability to affect change inside the group rather than just relying on the doctor to affect the change for you. So we had a really great conversation around group practice and how groups can really be the first step in reclaiming health. And I have to say, this is very much in line with the ethos that I was taught, you know, growing up, if you will, uh, in the chi- in chiropractic land, in the chiropractic community, because we talk a lot about this idea of reducing stress naturally first, either physical stress, chemical stress, emotional stress, and then bridging that with more extreme interventions. So whether that is medicine for symptoms that are not resolving or more high force interventions, whether it be chemo or um, other, other interventions of that nature. So this was very much aligned with the philosophy that I already have for healthcare, which is really empower the patient, empower the person to heal themselves. I always have a a little note that I would always say to patients, you know, you are your best doctor, so heal thyself, doctor. And sometimes you just need a little bit of guidance along the way. You need some nutrition guidance, maybe some mindfulness training. And this is really the, you know, kind of the part of the secret mission of the podcast is to bring on some of these amazing speakers and educators and doctors in my network to help bridge change for you. So this was a really great conversation. James is a wealth of information. He is a disruptor of many orders. And I hope that you enjoy this discussion as much as I did recording it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James Muskell. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. 
We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot after hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, James, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, such a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. We are going to be talking about the power of community and um, how it has the potential to cure uh, and reverse chronic disease. And I thought for the listeners, as we're getting started, to maybe explain some of your origin story in terms of how you got into holistic medicine and functional medicine. You are holistic royalty in terms of like who, you know, how you, you know, gave birth, you know, how you were delivered and, you know, first chiropractic adjustment. So maybe just give us a little bit of background in terms of who yeah. you are and where you come from. Well, look, I'm, I'm really outing myself in this uh, next book because I hadn't really talked about it, but I was born in a commune in Colorado. And if that sounds unlikely based on my accent is because I was born in Colorado, but I grew up in England and, and South Africa. I was born in Colorado. Uh, it was an intentional community. And that intentional community was really there at the beginning of the integrated medicine movement. You know, a lot of the ideas behind the community uh, are, have become, I would say, like mainstream self-help spirituality over the last 50 years. Uh, but yeah, I was born there. And I didn't realize that that was abnormal until I showed up at school 11 years later and realized no one knew what a chiropractor was and that people ate food that I did not really recognize as food. And I just sort of adjusted to uh, sort of sort of new life. I was the only kid at school whose mother insisted, and this is in the 80s, that uh, I not be given antibiotics at the drop of a hat. And so somehow, with no medical training, uh, my mother had sort of had a preeminent viewpoint of, uh, or sort of a, a understood ahead of time that there was going to be a downside of the overuse of antibiotics. And that just always stuck in my head. Like, I was like, how did she know? Like, what, what does she know that, that we didn't know? And, and ultimately, that was the foundation. So that was up until age 11. I got put in boarding school. My dad left the community very, like, suddenly. And, you know, as most teenagers do, I went through a phase of thinking my parents are insane. Um, and so I sort of took a different path towards a degree in economics with a, a focus on health. And then I got a, the best paying job I could, which was an investment banker. And I did that for about a year before I kind of realized I was playing for the wrong team and, and decided to take a different path from there. 
Yeah. And most, most uh, investment bankers, and I can say this because I've known many of them, they are curiously born without a soul. I don't know what, what the issue is there, but they're, uh, they're sometimes very, uh, they can, it's not necessarily in alignment with who I know you to be. No, it definitely wasn't. And yeah, I just, you know, I had a, a little help along the way. My, my um, mentor told me on his leaving party, like, get out, don't waste your life. I've been <laughs> doing the same thing for 30 years. Right. And, you know, there was also, you know, I was always intrigued by health economics was always super interesting to me because I'd studied it at university and I saw, you know, all of these major countries, America being the most obvious example, sort of about to fall off this huge cliff, mm -hmm. right, where health costs were going up and there wasn't any sort of reasonable plan for them to go down. And the, you know, the US was the worst example with the spending going up, the return on investment from new investment in health being terrible, but the UK and, and other countries were all following. And you know, having grown up in such a different health environment, I just sort of had a, a moment where I realized like, maybe some of what I was born into is, is a part of the solution and maybe I'm not born here to be an investment banker. Maybe I'm here to like follow a different kind of a path. And, you know, so that was 15 years ago. I quit my job as an investment banker. I moved to Georgia, the, the state of Georgia. And, you know, for the last 15 years, I've been really involved in the front lines of from a, from a health economics point of view, I was looking to solve a problem, which is how do you get the cost to go down? Mm. How do you get health to go up? And that started by, you know, working in a clinic and seeing people's health transform, right? Seeing people reverse their chronic illness, seeing people who had digestive issues like Crohn's and colitis or autoimmune stuff like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis um, and seeing them lose that diagnosis under the guidance of an empathetic practitioner, a naturopathic doctor in this case. Uh, I then... That, that was working in a clinic. I then got a, a job selling to those doctors. I realized like I needed to learn everything that I could about that industry. Like who was doing this? How do you do it? How do you maximize the potential of it? How can you find a way to do it like quickly and effectively? So the guiding North star, if you will, is maximizing health span and minimizing cost and I'm taking all these jobs and, and doing all this work sort of with a vision for trying to really understand that. And so that's been the journey for the last 15 years. It's taken me through, yeah, running a clinic, selling to these doctors. I started my own company in 2010, helping doctors sort of who were doing this communicate their message more clearly to their community. And then kind of around 2013, 2012, 2013, I think I, I understood really the world very clearly, this part of the world. And that's when I started to think about kind of expressing myself and my own ideas mm -hmm. about how to solve this. And in 2014, we started a thing called the Functional Forum. It became the world's largest functional medicine conference. Uh, we did that by making it free online for doctors, trying to make it aspirational and cool to practice the medicine in this way, putting people on stage like Dr. Kelly Brogan, who was in the first show, who was just like dynamite and sort of an aspirational character that other doctors might want to be. And then for the last five years, we've been helping doctors make the switch from conventional medicine to functional medicine and sort of building the army ready for this next phase, which is the transformation of healthcare around these principles. 
Yeah, and you're such a you're such a disruptor around this. And you know, the functional forum is one of the other things that I would add to that is that it's accessible because one of the big, you know, is planes, trains, and automobiles, right? To get on a plane, to go to a conference and the accommodations and you know, to be away from your family, that's a really big ask. But if it's online, it's much, you're really removing the barrier to getting access to, you know, rock stars like Dr. Brogan. I agree with that and I love love what you've done there. And your first book, I have to say, um, the evolution of medicine, which I think was the, sort of the first piece. And now we're going to talk about the next uh, piece, which is the community cure. But the fir- your first book really, if I could summarize it, was almost like a love letter to you know medical professionals, healthcare professionals around this idea of community, this, micropra- this community micro practice. Yeah. And for me, it really impacted me because I remember reading it, I picked up the book at Mindshare, which, uh, which you know, JJ Virgin uh, runs it, uh, has been a mentor of mine who I know you know and love. And I was rebuilding my clinic after it had burned down. And I said, you know what? I want this clinic to be a center, a community center for people. So we ran yoga classes, rehab classes. We had, you know, March Madness, you know, basketball challenges. We had, you know, everything was sort of through, you know, that we had brain puzzles and stuff like that. But the through line was I wanted the clinic to feel like it was a home away from home for people and they felt safe and they felt protected. And I think that that was like the first piece of your mission, if you will. And now with the community cure, I think your aim, if I can summarize it for you, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is it's to put the social back into biopsychosocial, right? It's that community yeah. aspect that I think you're really gunning for. Yeah, look, I mean, the, yeah, the first phase was, can we get enough doctors trained and practicing this new way of, 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 of practicing? And, and just to like take a step back, you know, it's really healthcare where the goal is self-efficacy. And what mm-hmm. that means is the goal where people can take care of themselves and they don't need a doctor and they don't need medication, right? That's not really the goal of modern medicine. The goal is just like symptom suppression. The goal is, you know, is, is managing. And, and if you start with that goal, you end up with the majority of the population on pharmaceuticals. And that is what leads to an explosion in cost. That is a problem for every, you know, for every organization that's, you know, that or every country or whoever's paying the bill. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so yeah, the goal was, was self-efficacy. So we needed more doctors that were trained in that. And that was the, the purpose of the first book, The Evolution of Medicine. You know, my goal with that book was if I put it in the hands of any doctor, at the end of it, would they feel like, oh, this is something that I should be doing. And here's a roadmap for me to get there. But I realized, you know, after that, and it was great, met tons of doctors, you know, it's been really fulfilling to, you know, see hundreds if not thousands of doctors make the switch to functional medicine and start to practice in this way. And the ripple effect of that is amazing. But ultimately, you know, there's a few things. So, so in the US, there's a reasonable shot that a lot of people could end up getting their healthcare that way. But it's not, it's still outside of the box, right? Seeing a doctor like this is outside the box. And certainly when you live in Canada or you live in the UK where my mom lives, where I grew up, you know, you're not, it, it's unlikely that you can have any meaningful impact on health uh, by playing around the edges like that, right? Getting doctors to quit their practice, start a micro practice and do it. And sort of at the same time as, as I'm, I'm realizing that, I'm also starting to realize that 
because chronic diseases are biopsychosocial in nature, like you just said, like there's biological reasons why they come along, there's uh, social reasons, there's psychological reasons, and they all sort of interplay, that ultimately a biopsychosocial disease needs a biopsychosocial cure. You can't cure a biopsychosocial disease with a pill, right? As much as someone would try and convince you, like those two things just don't match. Right. If you are lonely and that causes a genetic predisposition to give you depression, right, you can't solve that with a drug. There's a mismatch between the, the cause and the cure. And so ultimately I was like, okay, let's let's think about it. So one of the things that a few weeks, actually a few months before the functional forum started, I had for the first time in 2013 heard about this concept of a group medical visit where instead of seeing people one-on-one, you see people in a group. Now, if you've known an alcoholic or you've been in AA, you know that this is a normal way of treating people who have alcoholism because they realize that there's, you know, it's, it, it, there's a value in the peer-to-peer side of things where one person's experience helps the other person. And when you think about it, lifestyle-driven chronic disease is a lot more like alcoholism than it is like getting in an accident or getting, you know, having, you know, getting in a car accident, for example. And yet we were treating people with these chronic diseases as though they just had an accident, putting them in front of the doctor, giving them a drug or otherwise. So I just, you know, the first time it hit me, I was like, look, this is a really elegant solution, right? Because you create this community, behavior change is easier, It's super efficient. One of the problems with functional medicine in its first iteration was that it just took so long to do. There's no way that it could be the standard of care. And how are you going to find these, you know, you you started a massive center doing functional medicine. Where are you going to get all these doctors from? It just made no sense. And, And I was frustrated because the only way that I could see growing functional medicine was in this like small little niche outside of the real medicine, quote unquote. And so then when I heard about group visits, I was like, oh, this is really awesome, right? There's a lot of pieces. It's now it's efficient, it's affordable, it's accessible, behavior change is built into it. But what I what I never got was because the way that the first group visits that I heard of were being done, it was a one-off group. So it was like a diabetes group where in two hours, you know, we'll bill you for a 15-minute visit, but you're actually going to get a 90-minute visit. And in that time, we're going to talk about all the different ways in which diabetes comes along and ways that you can avoid it and reverse it with food, toxicity, all the parts that manifest in it. But what I didn't get was that you don't really become friends in, in an hour and a half with the people you're with. It might be an interesting experience, but there's not real friendship. And, and one of the things that hit me, you know, through this time was realizing that, you know, functional medicine bills itself as, the root cause medicine, right? If you ask people what is functional medicine, they'll tell you it's root cause medicine. And yet the biggest root cause of all, more than smoking, more than alcoholism, more than nutrition, was loneliness. And as long as we were treating people one-on-one, we were not solving for that. We were not affecting that at all. And so last year I did this tour around the, the US in a bus with my family. And as part of it, we ended up going to the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, which is sort of like the most exciting project in functional medicine, the first time that a major 
uh, academic institutions taking on functional medicine. And I found that they were starting to use, or they had been using for the last two years, a 10-week, two-hour-a-week group run by physician's assistants and uh, nurse practitioners and dietitians and health coaches. And the results were unbelievable like ridiculously good and those those that data is still about to come out hasn't come out yet and i was just like this is it right this has got everything that we need it's got the cleveland clinic stamp of approval you're introducing people who want to be who are lonely to each other and recreating community inside the medical system it's available on insurance and i was like this is this is it like this is the way that it's going to go down for mainstream adoption, right? Not just some little thing on the side, but just like the new standard of care. And so as soon as that happened, I just decided I wanted to learn everything I could about groups. I did a whole 10 past podcast series. And from the first interview with the first doctor on that series, which is this other doctor, Jeffrey Geller, the interview was so good. I was like, this has to be a book. And that was, uh, that was almost a year ago. And Dr. Mark Hyman, I think has, so that program that you're referencing from the Cleveland Clinic, I think it's a 10-week program. It's mandatory before you see any doctor. And I think he was saying something like 50% of the patients at the end of that program no longer required medication because of the lifestyle, the accountability, the, you know, the cure for loneliness uh, that had taken place during that time, which is, which is, which is incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, you're right. And the numbers are, the numbers are staggering. And yeah, so it was, it's been a great journey from them to, to, you know, just to, to see all the ways in which this is happening. It's, it's, it's happening in every vertical, right? So every, you know, cardiology, trauma care, uh, pediatrics, and then it's happening in every kind of horizontal, old people, young people, everything in between. Mm -hmm. And then it's also, it's also happening in, in different countries and different ways. It's really, it's really been fun to, to unpack the whole thing for the book. And I think that there's evidence of this, you know, when we try to look at the, you know, when we look at the blue zones and we say, what are the secrets of these centenarians? You know, these, these regions of the world are, you know, they have little evidence of, of chronic disease. They have they don't necessarily have access to sophisticated medical systems, and yet they have one of the things that all five of those, you know, Sardinia, uh, Okinawa, the Seventh-day Adventists, they all have really strong communities. I would always say sort of jokingly that your networks, your social networks will reinforce your neural networks, you know. So I would, I would love if we can, and I want to get into the group uh, plans and I want to really dissect this framework that you've talked about in the community cure. I want to just for the healthcare practitioners that are listening and even for those uh, that are not and are looking for ways to affect change in their own lives. Let's talk about stats. Let's talk about what like loneliness. I know that there's no billing code for lo we don't have a billing code right now for loneliness. But if you could go through some of the risk factors that we have. Um, for health in terms of data? Like what is the data telling us in terms of how loneliness affects health and health outcomes? Yeah. So loneliness, there was, so there's, you know, you mentioned the blue zones. So the blue zones is not a fluke, right? There is data uh, that shows that the degree to which a community, uh, a, a country or a, a community is integrated, the more integrated the community, the lower the mortality. So that was across a range of a range of countries. So obviously, when you have a super integrated community like they have in the blue zones, 
you, you definitely, you would expect to find that mortality uh, would be lower and, and life would be longer. So, you know, it's not a fluke. Then you get into, you know, sort of what I was sharing a minute ago, which is the role that different lifestyle factors play in or cause mortality. So whether that's smoking um, or alcohol or nutrition and, you know, social stress, which is isolation, loneliness, um, is a bigger driver of all-cause mortality than than those, and there's there's science on that. And then even at the at the cellular level, which is so you can go from the macro right down to the micro, you know, there's there's scientists that are doing a new area of research called human social genomics, and this has to be new really because the cost of genetic testing and sequencing has been so high that it had to come down to a certain reasonable level before you could retest people like again and again to see what's happening. But ultimately, even at the very, at the, at the deepest level, at the cellular level, you see that social stress is, is driving uh, inflammatory pathways. There was one stat that I have in the book, which is that if you're subject to a targeted rejection, which is someone intending to break a social bond with you, like a divorce or you get fired from your job, your risk of depression goes up by 22 times or 21 wow. times. Wow. So, and that's targeted rejection. If it's just general rejection, like a whole division, you know, gets fired, then that's only a, a two-time risk of depression, but a 21-time risk of depression because it's targeted rejection. So, you know, those, those kind of stats were super interesting, but then you start looking at it across like different disease categories, you know, what is the best predictor of whether um, someone, a woman with epithelial cancer will survive, it's a social network, uh, it goes across all the chronic diseases. So the reason why these groups are so effective is because one, you're solving the biggest factor, you're solving loneliness. But more importantly, I think you're actually creating a structure where people can execute on the healthy behaviors, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, most of it is being that, you know, if you look at Okinawa, you know, is it that or, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists, is it because they're not lonely or is it because the culture just determines that, like, let's say the Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists are in Loma Linda, California. That's in the Los Angeles Bowl. That is, right. you know, that is not a, like a pristine environment like you might argue that, say, Nicoya in Costa Rica is. Right, but right. These guys fast one day a week. They, you know, they have exercise built into it. In Okinawa, you know, standing up and down, you know, sitting and standing 25 times a day, you know, older people, that's unbelievably healthy. Uh, these are functional movements that, that can be used. So... Each one of these cultures, like in Sardinia, it's not everyone in Sardinia. It's these hill farmers that walk their sheep, you know, to the top of the hill and back, and they're 95 years old. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's, you know, that there's some inbuilt structure where people are sort of getting healthy behaviors that's inbuilt to the culture and reinforced by the community. So, you know, ultimately what we're doing with the group visits is just doing that. Because, you know, one of the things that's been amazing to learn, and I learned this from Terry Walls, who I'm sure most of your community is, is familiar with, she reversed her own MS, right? Incredible story. So she reverses her own MS. The number of people that want to see her goes through the roof, just like Cleveland Clinic. And so she has to start doing groups to keep up. And what does she find? And this is incredible. If you can get, if you can understand the implications of this, I think you really start to understand the the reason why the transformation of healthcare that we're about to undergo has to happen. 
So Terry Wall starts these groups. And bear in mind, these people are coming to do the Walls Protocol from Terry Walls. And yet, in these groups, the people who have MS and have made progress in the groups themselves are more inspiring to the new people than Terry Walls herself. And Terry Walls reversed her chronic, you know, her, her MS. So in that way, you start to see that, like, you know, even health practitioners like yourself, you know, your patients, you walk the talk, right? You're healthy and you glow and you look amazing. And I think the patients who have a, have a chronic illness are thinking to themselves in the background, you don't know what it's like to be me, right? You have no idea what it's like to have the situation that I'm in. And I'm glad that you're an expert, but you don't know. And ultimately, I think that's the solution that these groups provide that we have to build into the future of healthcare, where we have to be able to show people examples of people just like them who had the same exact set of circumstances and were able to beat it. Because we're sort of moving from this era of the expert to this you know, real value of like peer to peer. And I think that maybe we've been doing our patients a disservice by in a certain way by walking the talk. And that sounds crazy because forever for the last 20 years, we've been saying everyone's going to walk the talk. But that example just showed, showed me how powerful, you know, the, the value of other peers were in reversing chronic illness. And that's why Terry Wall said now that she's done it in a group, she'll never go back to one-on-one because she recognizes like, the hard thing about the walls protocol is getting people to eat nine cups of vegetables a day. What would inspire someone to do that? And in, in a lot of cases, it's someone just like them who's showing progress and they can see and go, I want to be like that person. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that I share that same value with you in making sure that the doctor and patient are level pegging, that there's no pedestal, that you're not saying, you you know, look at me in my perfect life, that we all sort of are able to share stories. And I think that that's how we um, affect change. And just to extend uh, a couple of stats that I pulled from your book on chronic and some of the chronic diseases, you know, loneliness and isolation linked to a 29% higher risk for heart disease, 32% for stroke. 25% for cancer, which I thought was insane, and 40% increase for Alzheimer's disease. So these are, you know, these are the big four, right? These are the ones we all want to talk about. We want to talk about cerebral vascular incidence. We want to talk about cardiovascular. We want to talk about these things. So if we are talking about this in a group visit, as you're saying, uh, this is one way. And I wanted to maybe dissect how so maybe we can talk about how a group patient like how group visits work and let's actually start there how does a group visit work what does it look like for from the patient's perspective and maybe from the practitioner's side as well yeah so uh at this moment i'm not sure if there'll ever be one way to do it right there's lots of different ways that seem to be working really well you know some groups come around because there just needs to be a different level of efficiency right? It's very efficient to do a 20 person thing. Like you can imagine, right? If you're the way that it always starts out with these groups is a resource constraint, Cleveland Clinic, resource constraint, way too many people want to come, Terry Walls, all all the examples sort Mm -hmm. of start out like that. Mm -hmm. And that's like an efficient delivery of information. But I think where the future is connecting people into these groups ongoing. So, you know, one of the things that I argue in the book is that 
what we're really talking about is the reestablishment of community in society where community is being taken away. If you look at in America, you know, we have technology um, like the automobile allowed us to all move into the suburbs and live in modular homes. And then the internet and Amazon has meant you know, that we don't have to go anywhere. And so you have the breakdown of community there. And the, you, know, you also have the breakdown of like traditional structures of community like the church and so forth. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. The reason why I think it makes sense to reestablish those groups in healthcare is that eventually everyone comes across some sort of health issue. And that's a moment where we can sort of bring them into a group if they need it. So what it looks like is for a patient is just showing up and there's going to be a bunch of other patients who have similar kinds of conditions than you. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they, you know, but, but ultimately everyone is there because they want to get better. And it probably looks like over a series of weeks, you know, initially starting to share with the group why you're there and what your goals are and, and why you want to be healthy, right? That was one thing that I heard all across the board is that by starting with why you can, it's very possible for groups to be mutually disempowering, right? right. If done the wrong way, if it's not facilitated well. And so, you know, mutual empowerment takes, you know, to start with purpose really is a great way to do it. And then over time, you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn some things from the content. There's going to be some content that's either generated from the health professional or is generated from the group itself, right? A lot of the most interesting groups, you know, the, the groups solve their own problems, right? They, where they, one person will say, well, I'm having a problem getting to this group because like my car broke down and the other person's like, oh, I'll give you a ride. And so like there's community that's been created, the group solving their problems. You're probably going to find that there's some healthy behaviors being done in the group. So one of the awesomest groups I went to is called Open Source Wellness. And in the two hour group every week for 16 weeks, they don't talk about meditation, they meditate, right? They don't talk about eating healthy, they eat healthy in community. They don't talk about mindful exercises, they do it. They don't talk about doing exercise, they're exercising. So I think that there's an opportunity to actually do those healthy behaviors in the group. And then, you know, there's probably going to be some sort of process of like feeding back to each other what they learned to what their experience has been so people can learn from each other. So that's sort of like the main structures that people do it, but we're seeing all kinds of innovation. Um, the biggest group visit actually that's ever run is called Centering Pregnancy. And that's very specific for women who were about to give birth. And as you 
probably know and, and can appreciate, you know, if you, if you go back and you think evolutionarily, this is the time that the community was the most important. Right. And I think a lot of like what you might see as, as postpartum depression, like Kelly Brogan really like has been banging this into me for years, is that what we think of postpartum depression is just like a natural reaction to the fact that we're isolated in a time where we should not be isolated. It's a lack of connection. Yeah, yeah a, exactly. And so, mm. you know, so Centering Pregnancy has grown. They've had, I think, 70,000 people have gone through the program. That's already available in, in health systems to a certain degree. So, you know, some of it, you're coming together for a very specific purpose, reversing your type 2 diabetes, having a baby, whatever. And some of it is, you know, it is just maybe a function of the medication that you're on or a function of the, the training that you're going through. But the real potential of these groups, Stephanie, is, is beyond the medical system, right? You know, like if you look at some of the most exciting group programs that have happened, they're being organized by churches or schools or offices or factories. You know, the goal here has to be, I don't really like the word prevention because, you know, how do you know what you prevented? Right. I'm talking about salutogenesis. I'm talking about yeah. health creation, like groups of people supporting each other to get healthy and avoiding chronic disease by doing healthy behaviors consistently, right? Prevention is very diseased disease-focused still. We're talking about health-focused health interventions. And that's where I think the most exciting future lies is, is finding ways to execute on these healthy behaviors outside of the doctor's office because, you know, there are a lot of forward-thinking doctors like yourself who, you know, think in this way, but the majority of the medical system does not think like this. Right. And so it's hard for them to sort of uh, take on these kind of ideas and implement because it's not disease centric, it's health centric. Yeah. And it's interesting when I look at, you know, my older relatives or even uh, Giovanni, my partner, his parents, who I know, you know, uh, you know, they're Italian, they have, and they are, they're just used to having multiple generations in one way in one house that, you know, the, the woman gets pregnant and then there's, you know, grandma, mom, and then the kids and everyone's helping sort of run you know, cooking, cleaning, raising, giving the mom a break when she needs it. And meals are, you know, this sacred time where no matter what's happening, everybody sits around the table, breaks bread together, shares about their day. And I love what you're saying because when we look at this in North American culture, we see if we even see dinner together at all, it's been, you know, it's been cooked from, you know, maybe you've ordered it on Uber Eats or you go through drive throughs and, there's that time with people, or if you're in North America, sometimes you don't even live in the same town as your parents anymore. You've moved to another town to make a better life for yourself. So I do think that in general, and I, I, I get that I sort of get this dual perspective because I can see the Italians and, you know, my background is uh, Lebanese and Portuguese. So they're very much, everybody does everything together. And, you know, sometimes you can make the argument that that's, you know, everybody's in everybody else's business all the time. But for the most part, they're supported through their community. And I think that we are, we have become divorced from, we live in these, you know, suburban, as you were saying, these homes that are isolated from each other. You don't know your neighbors anymore. And um, I like what you did in the book because you sort of put together the seven step. I mean, it's done within, it, this is really written, I think, for anybody who's wanting to drive community, whether it's through their own practice or it's out in the community. But there's almost a seven step model that you've outlined. And the first thing is groups. So, you know, theming yeah. the groups, if, you know, whether it's age, 
related groups, cult, you know, they speak the same language. There's a, you know, chronic disease that maybe they, you know, maybe the fiber people with fibromyalgia all get together or type two diabetes or whatever. I would love to, if you can, and we can walk through each of the seven and I have notes here in case we, we get out of order, but I would love to talk about each of these components and why yeah. you've ordered them in the way that you have, because I think it's brilliant. So we start with Absolutely. groups. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's, I want to just take it. Yeah. And, and thank you. And ultimately, yeah, the, the community cure, which is the final chapter is really kind of my thesis on 15 years as a health economist. How should we, how should, how could we control costs to maximize health span? And ultimately, you know, what I, what I came back to was we need to build uh, an alternate system, an alternate, like the, the disease care system does what it does very well. We've put un, uh, you know, unrealistic expectations on that system to do what it was not designed to do. Like the healthcare system that we have today, whether it's the UK system, America system, Canada system, or any westernized system was really designed to deal with acute disease, trauma, infections, car accidents, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it was all created in that, in that era. The kind of diseases that we have today are not those diseases. You mentioned the big four. They have almost nothing in common with that. So going with a drug-first approach is, is, doesn't work on that, on that way. So then I was starting to look, okay, we're going to build this new system. And rather than thinking, oh, this is going to be something that's so cost prohibitive, what could we build on that already works, right? So I started to look around and see what are some ideas that we could build on. And an idea that I learned about through the last, you know, over the last 14 years, a concept that in my mind appeals to me as an economist. It also appeals to me as a human, mm -hmm. as a father, is this idea of the therapeutic order. And the therapeutic order comes from naturopathic medicine. And all it says is we should start with the least costly, least invasive interventions first and then work our way up to drugs and surgery as a last resort. And again, it makes sense to me as an economist because I'm like, yeah, let's try and get do the most with the least, right? That's super yes. efficient. MVP, yeah, the yeah. minimum viable product. But then also it appeals to me like we live in a world where death from drugs and surgery, death from medicine, iatrogenic disease is the third leasing cause of death. So by doing the least invasive thing first, we're actually minimizing harm. First, do no harm, right? This is like right on that zone. So that's why it appeals to me. And so in that system, there's these seven, seven steps. So the first thing is we have to solve the social determinants of health. And, you know, for all the people who have been involved in, in functional medicine for the last 30 years, I think we have to be honest with ourselves that it's only really been for rich people. And, you know, and ultimately for, for people who are disempowered, right, there's no way you can do yoga classes and, you know, cook healthy meals from home if you don't have a car or if you're working three jobs or if you have five kids and no support. Or access so, to nutrition knowledge. Like yeah, how would you exactly. know? Yeah. Organic versus not. Yeah. So, you know, so the first layer has to be solving the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. The next layer has to be, you know, kicking in the natural healing ability of the body, right? The body heals. You cut your finger, it heals. That potential can go down, and but that potential can be revved up. So that's part two. Part three is uh, improving function, and that's through, you know, supporting weakened systems. 
that's part three. And then as you go up, it's like having structure. Part four is healthy structure. So that would be like chiropractic. That would be, you know, physical therapy. Like is the body aligned structurally? And then you have sort of green allopathy, which is like use of supplements and herbs and nutritionals to like kind of like to do the same thing as drugs in a natural way. And then part six would be drugs. And then part seven would be high force interventions like chemo, autoimmune biologicals and surgery. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the, that's the naturopathic therapeutic order. And I think it's really smart. So then all I did was say, look, these bottom three layers, like if you look at say the Cleveland clinic functioning for life groups, there's certainly a level of empowerment there, right? People are learning to read their own labs. They're getting together to solve each other's problems They've changed these, they've evolved these groups to serve, let's say, minority men who have, you know, the worst problems with cancer and heart disease, right? So that, that's happening. There's empowerment happening there. You know, when we talk about turning on the healing potential of the body, you know, Jim Gordon's mindfulness-based stress reduction groups, they've reduced PTSD by 80% in Kosovo and Gaza and, you know, Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Right. So obviously there's potential for these groups. If you're going to do mindfulness based stress reduction or acupuncture in a group, right, that fits well. And then obviously nutrition in the groups, helping people work out how to eat healthy and eating healthy, that happens. So all I said is like these bottom three layers should just be delivered in a group and they could even be the same group. So ultimately, you know, my vision for for transforming healthcare is really to create this bottom layer of empowerment groups that facilitate turning on the body's healing mechanisms and dealing with weakened systems that have been weakened as a result of malnutrition uh, and so forth. And so, and then above it, you can have like the one-on-one care, functional medicine, chiropractic, you know, and then even drugs and surgery is still there. And that's, that was, you know, that was sort of my, my thesis. And I want to give you an example because there is one place in the world where this is happening and it's totally amazing. And I didn't even put it in the book, but it's, it, it actually happened right down the road from where I was born. So there is a town in the UK called Froome. And in Froome, six years ago, they set out on a plan to be able to solve loneliness. And in six years, what they've done is absolutely amazing. So for a year, the first thing that they did was to identify any group that was happening anywhere. And just, to, it's three towns, it's this area called Mendip, it's 115,000 people. So they identify this in this town, any group, it could be a bereavement group, it could be a health group, it could be a sewing club, it could be a running group, anything. And they took those 2,000 and they, they whittled them down to about 400, things that were happening weekly, that were always happening, that they knew would be, be happening and that would be good value for people. And they put them up on a website. That was the first step. Second step, they hired six health coaches where they call, they call health connectors. And their goal, if people were feeling lonely, they would go to the website with them and show them the different groups and connect them to a group that would be right for them. Right. So this was the only hiring that had to happen was these six groups. And then, and this is the most genius part of all of them, Stephanie, they not hired, but they then recruited. Now they have a thousand what they call community connectors. So these people are unpaid. These are taxi drivers, people that work in cafes, uh, regular people. They wear a green pendant and they wear a green pin 
And their job is solely, they don't tell people what to do. They just show people how to get to the website. That's their job. And they also run these things called talking cafes where different cafes for a certain number of hours a week are talking cafes where you can come in and you can meet with one of these health connectors or community connectors and get plugged into the system. It's been so effective. They've saved almost three million pounds on emergency admissions into the hospital, A&E. Did you say three million? Three million. And look, this is is amongst 115,000 people. So it's not a you know a huge country. So it's working unbelievably well. And ultimately, it was been so great to see that that vision is just being created. Now, what those guys haven't worked out exactly yet is the power of functional medicine delivered in a group with what I just said. Mm-hmm. But we're cross-pollinating as we speak. By the time this podcast comes out, you know, the person who's in charge of that project and, and all the things that we're doing are connecting and it's all being connected up. So ultimately... I'm super excited because what we see is that this future is at hand, right? And the, the real exciting thing about Canada and the UK is that they both have this single payer system, which up until now has actually kind of stopped innovation with functional medicine to a degree. Functional medicine is way further forward in America because the health system is so you know, messed up that people can choose functional medicine and they're paying one way or another. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the reasons why it's been hard in Canada or the UK for this to take off is because there's resource constraints. Right. But the good news about group visit is it solves the resource constraints. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like I was just in the UK, I did a talk called the community cure for the NHS. And it was really talking through these concepts in the context of a resource constraint, which is exactly what they have there. I mean, they're even thinking of privatizing the NHS because of these resource constraints. And so here's an opportunity where if people really want to keep the NHS, they want to keep that medicine where they don't have to pay, they want to keep that, they don't just have to talk about it, they can participate. They can become a community connector. And so that's, that's what's really exciting, Stephanie, is that there's the opportunity is that for people who really care about this, they can not just like go to politicians and ask for more money, but participate in the solution. And that's what's really exciting. So I would expect in the next five years, the, main, the mainstream adoption of these empowerment lifestyle groups into healthcare, and it'll happen in Canada and the UK because of resource constraints and needing to save money from government spending. Mm-hmm. And it'll happen in the US because it's not just efficient, it's profitable too. It's, it's way more profitable to build 16 people's insurance for the same practitioner at the same time. And so the group visits has this incredible benefit of being both profitable and efficient, which I think is, is why I'm so bullish about this becoming the standard of care. Yeah. And it's, you know, I have to say it's efficient from the doctor's perspective as well, because it allows the doctor to be incredibly efficient, deliver the quality of care. I mean, every medical doctor, naturopath, chiropractor, we all got into it because we want to affect change in our patients. We care about them. So this group model allows us to give and deliver on that quality of care. I mean, I think Dr. Hyman's group, they get 14 hours of curriculum. And when I read that, I was like, I don't know any patient that's gotten 14 hours of my time. I mean, maybe over the course of years and years of them being under my care, but that's a lot of resource that they would not otherwise have access to. Yeah. If you're a patient that wanted that in the last 20 years, what did you do? You probably went to do health coach training. Right. right? Because that was your only way to like learn. 
Yeah. You never really wanted to be a health coach. You just wanted to have a curriculum on how to stay healthy. 100%. And I think it also reduces burnout as well. It improves your efficiency. So to your point around, around economics of health, it, it, improve, sorry, it improves the efficiency of the clinic. And it also reduces the burnout of the doctor because sometimes the doctor... I know in, in, in my schooling, I, we got a ton of nutrition, but maybe not all doctors are super interested in that or they don't have the training. So this allows for different experts to come in or the community as a whole to gather resources and deliver that. So you touched on profitability and I wanted to go there because I know that that is a question that comes up. So the doctors and health providers that are listening and that are getting excited about this the question is, okay, how are they profitable? So can you walk us through some different scenarios? I know you give a lot of them in the book, but how can we make money uh, or make this a profitable endeavor and still do what we love? So yeah, there's lots of different ways to do it. And it really depends, you know, are you taking insurance? I'll give you a couple of examples. So I've got a couple of friends here in near where I live in Sacramento who are awesome uh, functional medicine pediatricians right? And they work inside the system. So, right, they're just salaried. But as an example, they've had a huge waiting list because, you know, they're, they're, they're really in demand because there's a ton of sick kids, right? And so they're in demand and they've got really good results in reversing chronic pediatric illness. And so a few weeks ago, they started doing group visits. And their CEO, after the first week of these group visits, knocked on their door and said, uh, what's going on here? Like you have quadrupled your billing this week because they did two visits where there were 50 people in each of them. Now that's not an ideal number, mm-hmm. but he could see like normally you see 30 people a week. This, this week you saw 130 people, right? So for the system, they're billing a lot more people because they're billing all these people for a 15 minute visit, but they're just choosing to have a shared appointment. Mm-hmm. So that's that. So for people who are in private practice, right, where you own it, there's many different ways you can do it. I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, you're, you're only spending your time and you're billing all of these people uh, the same. And I'll, I'll give you one example of something. So we, we have a program called the Practice Accelerator. We started four years ago and it was really a, a community for doctors who wanted to make the switch to functional medicine and they could form a community of their peers and learn to build these new practices. So one of these doctors uh, who we're working with, you know, she was charging cash, right, in a small town in Wisconsin. And what she realized was that her initial visit, which was an hour and a half, multiplied by her uh, hourly rate, $300, was putting a $450 barrier, right, to anyone to even engage in functional medicine at all. Right. And so, you know, there was a lot of people who wanted it because there's no other doctors who do it. And there's people who are ready to spend that kind of money to get well. There's a lot of people who would never spend that kind of money without knowing exactly what was going to happen. So what she decided to do was to run a one-off intaking group visit. Like when you go through the functional medicine process, you really start to understand why you got the disease you got, right? So one of the most frustrating things about about healthcare for people is when they have this kind of conversation, like, how did I just get lupus? Like, what happened? What did I do yesterday? A month ago, I I didn't have lupus, and now I've got lupus. Like, how did this happen? And they just can't understand it. And Mm. to be fair, it's totally fair. Like, that, that didn't happen in one day. 
right? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, when you go back and now you start doing your whole health history and you're looking at like your health, you know, the healthy fundamentals of how you take care of your sleep and stress and whatever. And then you're looking at like the seven core processes and how they break down over time. You know, you can see, okay, you had 15 courses of antibiotics before you were two years old. There was the starting point. Like you never put those two and two together, but now you understand like some, you know, some damage was done to your gut lining before you were two. It wasn't your fault. Right. And because no one really understood this that well at that point, apart from my mom, um, that you were given the chance to be able to repair that. And 30 years later, it's showing up as lupus. And ultimately, you know, that sort of process has been really valuable. So imagine 18 people in the waiting room, because that's how many people could fit in the reception of this clinic, going through and plotting their own health history together, doing the intake that normally you do with a doctor for $450, doing it in a group together and learning that. Okay, what percentage of those people are now, oh, this makes a lot of sense. I want to see you full time. So you've got that upsell right into going to see the doctor. But more than anything, for $30, you've really empowered people to understand their health. And at the end of it, Dr. Salia, she gives everyone a customized food plan, one of six food plans, you know, that would, they would take depending on what their issue was. And so, you know, in that situation, now for $30, uh, people have been introduced to functional medicine. She does that twice a month. So that's 36 new people that get introduced to functional medicine a month. Out of that, what, a third of them come on for the, you know, initial visit. But even in that 90 minutes, $30 times 18 people is $540 that's higher than she was making for one-on-one -on -one care. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's just an example of one way that groups are being used to solve some of the problems of essentially personalized medicine. You know, if you're going to do personalized medicine, it, it might take more time than just prescribing whatever drug is for that issue. So how are we going to build enough efficiency into the system to make it available for everyone? Groups is really the, the most obvious answer. Yeah, that's great. And I and I would find on my initials, a lot of times the same issues would come up. And I love the idea of having not necessarily, or maybe a group initial, but also a group report of findings as well, where you can take, you know, people can come in with potentially their lab results or the results on, you know, whatever medium, whatever proxy you're using for, for uh, diagnosis or establishing an issue. And then you can almost give a a group presentation on what the things you want to be looking out for on your lab results are. And then maybe you can take them for, you know, a five or 10 minute individual consult and looking at their, looking at their lab results. Cause I remember when I was doing day ones and day twos, that's sort of the internal language we would use. Like the day one was, you know, the patient was explaining what was going on with them. The day two, we'd have all the labs, all the diagnostics, we'd have the x-rays, all that kind of stuff. And we'd be going through it. 85% of the material that I would be telling the patient would be almost identical. And I can see when we're talking about economies of scale and we're talking about efficiencies, I think that in a group format would be incredibly useful so that you're also, you know, you're bringing in that, that community aspect where people might have the same question or someone asks a question that someone else might have been too nervous or, you know, scared to, uh, to bring up. And you're getting the the general information across in an efficient way, and then you can take the individuals maybe into you know your examination room for their you know if there's any nuances or anything in that way. Is that something that you've seen as well, or is hundred percent? So yeah, in a in a um, 
in a billable group visit, you typically do have to have like a semi-private screening with people to do the stuff that you have to do in order to make insurance billable. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly examples of, you know, a two provider model where the rest of the group is, is sort of in a facilitated conversation with, let's say a health coach answering each other's questions. And then the doctor is taking people one-on-one to have little conversations with them. I think it's actually an innovation to talk about, about what you're talking about. We've certainly seen group lab reviews too right? In a group lab review, you're not telling people what their labs mean. You're telling people what the range means. You're telling what a high thing means, what a low thing means. And then they can see their own number there and see whether they're high or low. And you're not mm-hmm. saying, oh, Dave's got a hemoglobin A1C of 12. You're saying, okay, seven is diabetic, four is normal and 12, you know, and then he knows 12 is really bad. Yeah. And he can see it on his own. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to even venture that to the group. But if he says, hey, I'm seeing that mine's 12, like, what can I do to reduce my number? Then Dave over there goes, oh, well, um, I just started eating a plant-based diet with, you know, good, you know, with good the fats and good, you know, whatever. And I got mine down in, in three months to six and a half. And he's like, really? Oh, just tell me what you did. Mm-hmm. Like, and the doctor's just sitting back and being like, okay, you know, yeah, here's the food plan that he used. So that, you know, that's the, that's the, the way that I've seen it. And honestly, the doctors that do this love it. And, and I don't think it's for everyone. I think there are some doctors that just want to do what they do and do one-on-one. But the really exciting thing, Stephanie, is that if we're talking about scaling up functional medicine, the, one of the biggest problems with is that the learning process for each new doctor is so long. Right. When I think about what kind of education you have to go through to learn all this stuff. And retraining. It, retraining. <laughs> retraining. Unlearning. Yeah, man. Right? Yeah. And so when I went to the Cleveland Clinic, I met a PA there, and I mentioned this in the book. She had never heard of functional medicine, and she'd never run a shared medical appointment or group. Mm. And within a few weeks, she was just crushing it, and she loved it, and they loved it, and they loved her. Mm-hmm. And so like, if we're really talking about scaling up the army, this is what's necessary because we don't have decades to retrain a whole group. And this is why when some of the things come up, like you just said, like, oh, doctors need to get training in education, in nutrition. I mean, yes, kind of, but like, are we really going to wait around for that? Or are we just going to build a nutrition system that doesn't rely on doctors having to know everything? Right. That's just the way I think about it. You know, doctors need to know enough to know it's important, but ultimately there are all these other types of practitioners that really want to get involved and are hungry, you know, to, to help and have the education. And here's the thing, like if you, if you teach someone to medicate, meditate and you do it 10% wrong, what is the downside risk of that? It's Mm -hmm. nothing, right? right? If you give people the wrong drug, the downside risk could be death. So, you know, we're, we're talking about something that has a much different risk profile and should be treated accordingly. Do you think that there's an argument that patients might be resistant to being in a group? You know, I think, is there anything that, because I think, I think sometimes we're hyper aware of if privacy, right? We want our privacy. We yeah. want the, you know, the one-on-one time with the doc. Um, you've given a lot of examples around, you know, the Terry Walls. People are going to learn from the Terry Walls, but what they're actually getting a lot of value in is seeing other people's results. But have you ever come across, uh, whether it's doctors inquiring or patients themselves, that might be resistant to being in a group and sharing? And being 100%. Vulnerable? Yeah. Not only have I come across it, but it's the norm. And this is exactly how it goes down. No one wants to be in a group until they're in a group and then they realize the group's awesome. Mm-hmm. And there is a barrier there. 
And that's why, again, like I think that's why it's an important place for community to be reestablished because there's still enough of sort of like a command and control system where a physician can say, the next step for you is to be in this group. And because the physician is smart, you're like, okay, I better have to be in the group. And then you go to the group and you realize, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Whereas if we just left everyone to their own devices, I think that internal you know, that internal feeling of not being, you know, not wanting to do it, which I think is totally natural. Just think about the groups that we're put into, right? Family, school, like a lot of this is kind of traumatic and dysfunctional. Let's be honest, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the schoolyard, the locker room, right? These are the groups that we're shoved into from birth. And a lot of families are super dysfunctional too. So I'm not sure why, you know, it makes sense to me that people aren't that trusting of community or trusting of these groups because they've had traumatic experiences in the past. But -hmm. ultimately, these groups are very different. These are groups of people who are coming together, who have the intention to get healthy and to reverse their chronic illness. And, you know, what I've heard consistently across the board is whatever resistance was there at the beginning goes away as soon as they realize that everyone's just like them. Are there any tips and tricks around getting people to open up? I know, uh, I believe his name is Dr. Geller was talking about disinhibition and this concept of asking questions that unite the group. Is there any, is there any way that we can, uh, as facilitators encourage our group to open up? For sure. Like facilitation is is a skill in itself. So, you know, I definitely think that uh, you need to have a skilled facilitator. Maybe that's a role that you want to take on as a health professional. Maybe you want to hire someone like a health coach who maybe has some facilitation training. It is quite, yeah, it's a a big deal. I think the tip is that, you know, ultimately having the answer is not always the most important thing. You know, people solving their own problems is the most, that's, that's real empowerment, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, so I think it's a good start to put more patients than doctors in the room if you want empowerment. But I think that for practitioners who are involved, I think you really have to realize that your expertise is not as valuable as your ability to help people help themselves. And I, I think that there can be, you know, when we're thinking about how to make a group the best that it can be, I think setting up boundaries around what they can expect from a gr- um, from the group as well. Like if you're coming in with this idea that you lead with positivity, for example, or, you know, there's guidelines around the way that everybody communicates, like there's no shame, like there's no place for shame. Everybody is accepted here no matter what. I think that you can put some guideposts in place in order to have a really productive group. Would you say that that's true? No, hundred percent. In the book, we get really specific into that. Look, there are things that can go wrong in groups for sure. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we've done everything that we can in this book to, you know, for anyone who's reading to participate in a group, you know, there are plenty of groups that have been created around specific kinds of conditions that are not in the medical system, like groups for community batch cooking, for AIP, for people with autoimmune or cancer groups that get together. So, you know, there, there's plenty of value on that end. But in the book, in chapter six, is really like a step-by-step guide on how to run a group and how to deal with problems that can come up inside a group. And so, yeah, we just have to, you know, the cool thing is we're not starting from scratch. There's years and years of experience of people doing it. Mm -hmm. And what we've tried to do in the book is just share as much of that as possible so that anyone who wants to run a group can do so. And I will say that 
that chapter six, it is very detailed. It's like bring enough pens for everybody, have stickers <laughs> for everyone's name. Like you, you go through literally everything. So, you know, if you've never run anything like this before, the community cure in that chapter specifically, there's uh, very much a template for you to run your first, uh, for your first group. And I have to, you know, I have to say, I love this idea so much because this is, you're bringing people together in circles, connecting as we've done, you know, like the beginning of time. And as a chiropractor, you know, this, this philosophy of care also very much resonates with me. You know, we're taught in, it's very similar to the naturopathic uh, ethos where we talk about physical stressors, chemical stressors, and emotional stressors. And those are the things that you work on first. And if you've worked on, so chemical stressors would be things like diet, nutrition, supplementation, emotionals, the mindfulness, the meditation. And of course, the physical alignment is the rehabilitation with your chiropractor, your adjustment, what have you. And if those things don't work, then and only then do you go into more of these higher uh, or these high force interventions, as you, as you call them. Maybe there's medication or there's uh, you know more more aggressive interventions at that point. And I think that this is a you know programming or a model that over delivers in its value much more so than the doctor, even with the best of intentions, could ever deliver on. So I just want to thank you so much for your brain and dissecting the book in the way uh, that you have. We're going to time this podcast release with the release of your book. So tell us when it's released. And I believe it's it's, are you giving this book? Is this free on Amazon? Like, yeah. what is the, what's the, tell us the yeah, deal? Yeah, so we want to make this book available to as many people as possible. You know, if you're listening to this, you know, we, it is from the 14th to the 18th of January 2020. It's going to be available for free uh, on Amazon via download. Um, we will make, uh, we, we have physical copies, we have audio books. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's we're just trying to make it as available for everyone, and I'm sure you can have a link uh, to send people to. Yes, we'll have all that in the show notes. But yep. yeah, like it's you know, and ultimately, I'll tell you if you if you get the book and you like it, you have full permission to like send it on to anyone. I mean, ultimately, I'm here for the large scale transformation of the health systems. I'm not really caring about selling a certain number of books, and you know, one of the things that I I think. With this book, in the last book, you know, it's not that interesting to, let's say, someone who's in charge of a hospital to hear about doctors leaving the system and starting their own private practice. It might annoy mm -hmm. them, actually. Yep. Whereas now, if they read this book, anyone who's in any sort of, like, authority position, whether it be a politician or, you know, someone who's in charge of, like, a health system or any sort of health administrator, that's one of the cool things about this book is that the heroes of this book are a lot wider. You know, the one, the woman who started the Cleveland Clinic Center, like Mark Hyman was obviously there in the midst, but Tawny, who's a 20-year administrator at the Cleveland Clinic, like she's the one who came up with Functioning for Life. Mm -hmm. So now the administrators have a chance to be the hero yeah. because they're creating these programs that can really transform health. So I'm excited to get into the hands of so many people. So if you're listening to this, download it, read it on your Kindle, MP3 it, send it out. You have my permission to uh, steal it and send it. Thank you so much, James, for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. 
Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast. And the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.